Father, we thank you for your word and we, we pray that as we come back to the book of James, Lord, that, that you would be the one who speaks to us today. That your word, your eternal word, faultless and flawless, without error, your living word, able to, to mold us and change us. Lord, may it do its work amongst us today. I pray that I would assist in the understanding of your word and I wouldn't get in the way of your words at all. And that you would speak to each one of us today as you've spoken with these words for generation after generation. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, as we come back to the book of James, I feel there's a need for a few reminders as we quickly skim through the early verses, okay? So, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we have James writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is a distinctly Jewish letter written to Jewish believers. That's going to become relevant for us to have uh, as a reminder uh, shortly. Um, And then, as I've said multiple times as we've been going through James in the early weeks, he begins, uh, he comes out at the first round as the bell rings with punches flying. That this is not the letter of uh, Paul who begins by telling us in his letters typically, this is what God has done for you, now then go and live this way. But rather that James structures his book, and we'll see this um, routinely as we go through it, with commands addressed to the saints. Count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2. When we finally come to verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality. And we have this structure again and again and again. James is the book of commands. There's just command after command after command after command from the start. And he is clearly writing to believers, to Jewish believers. And so he started off with this astonishing command that we should count it or consider it joy to the brothers and sisters. The Greek word would encompass both men and women when you meet trials of various kinds. And that really was the foundation for the whole book. That when we come to situations of trials, which they were walking through and which we are walking through, that we need to look at those situations, not being purely as situations of dread, not simply being um, situations that should be um, avoided and we must flee from, but rather that we would consider it a joy. Not because it is a joyful. Again, we're we're not um, encouraging you to be uh, completely, um, you know, I've got to be careful how I choose my words here, but, you know, you know those people who say, oh, you're going through a terrible trial. Hallelujah, isn't that wonderful? No, it's not. It's horrible. Don't be that person, whatever you do. You you, You would not be very welcome amongst the saints if you are that kind of person but rather because it is not joyful we are to consider it to be so we are to to value it in such a way why verse 3 because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and the steadfastness 
and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so, trials give us the opportunity to mature towards completion, towards perfection. Trials give us the opportunity to get to the point where we lack nothing. None of us want to be that Christian that falls and fails again and again. Some of you have been going through the Bible reading plan that we have at the back. There's copies at the back for you to to jump in with us if you haven't yet done so. And uh, if you have, you've been reading through in Genesis the story of Abraham and how when Abraham, who was blessed with an astonishingly pretty wife, when he turns up in a place, he says, hey, let's pretend you're not my wife so that I don't get killed because these people might just steal you. That Abraham defined himself as being a person that would not trust God. God says, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, that there's going to be a line that comes through you, and here he is with his wife, and it's like, well, I might get killed. Didn't God have a promise for you? And Abraham is humiliated by his lack of faith. So he learns his lesson, right? No, not so much. He has to come and learn the same lesson in exactly the same situation all over again. A second time, he tells his wife, let's pretend you're not. And then one of the most astonishing things is that even after Abraham learns his lesson and trusts God to the extent that he's willing to sacrifice his own son, which you may have just read this morning, in fact, if you're following the plan, that Isaac makes exactly the same mistake as well. Exactly the same mistake. And we don't want to be that kind of person, do we? Do we want to be the people whose, whose resume, as it were, is a reminder of the mistakes that we've made? Do we want to be the person who does great things and then falls and is remembered not for the great things but for the falling? Do we want to be the person who ultimately didn't trust God? Do we want to be the person that didn't endure to the end? Do we want to walk with God faithfully for years and then at the end leave our friends and family wondering whether we were saved at all? We don't want to be that person. What on earth can we do about it? We can consider it a joy when we come to trials. Because trials are going to knock the stuff out of us that holds us back. It's going to deal with the sin in our lives. It's going to make, the, God's going to make the changes, expose the frailties so that the changes can be made, that we would lack nothing. Then in verse 5, and I'm not going to go through all of this so much, but I really wanted to remind you of this because it's so misunderstood. If any of you lacks wisdom, he's not saying, I know that some of you may not have been here for that sermon or you may have forgotten, but he's not saying, look, do you, know, do you not know what to do? Say a quick prayer and I'll give you wisdom. But, but it, you've got to be really sure that I'm going to give you wisdom, otherwise I might not give you wisdom. That's how most Christians read that verse. 
That's not what it's saying in context. Well, in verse 4, it said that we would let these trials have their work amongst us. Be steadfast. Stand on the faith. Stand on the word all the way through trials. That the trial and the steadfastness in the trial will have its effect. And if it has its full effect, then we will end up lacking in nothing. So he starts the book by saying, consider a joy in trials. Because then you'll lack nothing. Do any of you lack it? Do you lack something? In other words, have you considered it joy? Has trials, have trials in your life had their full effect? Have you been steadfast fast all the way through them? That's the question he's essentially asking in verse 5. And the wisdom here speaks not of whether we know which direction to go or not, in a, in a specific sense, but it speaks more of the way of wisdom. It speaks of, are we going to live God's way or are we going to not live God's way? The question of verse 5 really is this. When trials have come into your life in recent times, have you panicked ever? Have you ever lost focus? Have you ever let your, your, your focus go upon the possible consequences? All the bad things that might happen? Have you taken your eyes off Christ? Have you forgotten that this trial is an opportunity for you as an individual, and perhaps us as a church corporately, to mature, to be better than we were, to deal with the sin in our lives that we're not dealing with? Guys, I, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I've been a Christian for over 35 years. And I'll tell you the one thing I just see again and again, almost like clockwork, is trials come and some Christians use those trials and they get changed. And other Christians don't and they fail and they go back to the same pattern of behavior that they were in before the trial began. Don't be that latter person. Do you lack wisdom? Do you walk the right way in the midst of trials? When difficulties come into your life, do you live trusting in God? If you don't, ask God. What, you mean ask God who says that he'll bring those changes through trials? Isn't that tantamount to asking for trials? Pretty much. And that's why you've got to be sure. That's why you mustn't be a double uh, soul, the double-minded person. You have to ask in faith with no doubting. You know, it's not about doubting, you know, is God able to do this or is God able to do that? The doubting issue is this. Do you really want to walk a godly life? Oh, yeah, 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 you say, of course, of course I want to live a godly life. I, I, want, to, I want to follow Jesus. I just want to go wherever he leads me. Hallelujah. Praise God. Throw in a few Christianese expressions. It's so easy to say that stuff. What James is saying, do you really mean it? Let me give you an example. There's a guy. Let's just, let's just call him Pete. And Pete's a very confident man. Oh, you know, I love you, Jesus. I've got your back. I'm your, I'm your guy, Jesus. Now, the other guys who follow you, I'm not sure they're going to be the ones following you at the end, but I will follow you. I'm up for anything. 
You're going to walk on water? I'll come with you. I'm your man. And Pete, just some random name I've made up, is the sort of guy that says, I got it sorted. I'm strong. I'm in my faith. And so the question goes to Pete, hey, Pete, do you want to follow Jesus? Really? Oh, yeah, I'm, gonna, that's what, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing it now. I'm following Jesus. I'm all about following Jesus. Okay. But maybe if we're like Pete, we're not quite as strong as we think we are. Maybe our, our confidence is more pride than assurance. Maybe we need to deny Jesus three times so that we see the terrible state of our hearts. Maybe we need to be scraped up from the bottom again so that we can see how bad we are and he can start to use us. You see, you've got to be sure if you're going to ask for wisdom. You've got to be absolutely sure. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Yeah, but you were praying this morning for that career path. What if, what if that doesn't happen? Oh, well, can't I have both? Maybe not. Do you still want to follow me? Maybe we'll end up without the things that we want in life. There is that astonishing prayer of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Man, I tell you, every time I read that, it just crushes me. It's just such a challenging prayer. Where there is Moses, I should probably read it. He's there at the very end of his life. And he's just been leading the Jews and the, the Israelites and they've gone to the brink of the promised land and they should have gone in and they didn't go in because of their sin and so he has to lead them around the wilderness and then right towards the end in a moment of rashness he strikes the rock the second time and he's not allowed to go to the promised land this is a man who the one thing he was expecting to happen didn't happen and in his final prayer, the Song of Moses at the end of his life, he says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. That's the path of wisdom right there. You want to do this? You want to... to you know, have, have this in your life, you want to get this, manage this, accomplish this, you want to be happy, you don't want to have to suffer that, you don't want to go through this, you've got this kind of dream life that you have in your mind's eye, this ideal, I want to do this, accomplish that, I want to, to marry this person and, and live this kind of life and have this kind of thing. Nobody sits down and says, oh, you know what, I've got a good plan for my life, I've got a good five-year plan. And I'm, I'm counting on this to come through, you know. I want to go bankrupt, I want to be divorced, and then I want cancer. That's my five-year plan. No one's doing that. All of us instinctively, without even realizing it, we have, we have goals and ideals and desires. And God says, if you want wisdom, 
you be sure that you really do before you ask for it. Ask with faith. No doubting. Because you mustn't expect, if you want your best life now, and at the same time you want to follow Jesus, don't ask to follow Jesus because you're not going to be following Jesus. You've got to be sure that you are prepared to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Because, of course, that's what happened with Peter, wasn't it? Peter said, oh, you know, I'm with you, Jesus. I've got your back. I'm your man. And then Jesus says, okay, I've got to go die. But he says, no, 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 no. That's not happening. And he rebukes Jesus. I shamefully admit, though I wouldn't have perceived it to be such at the time, that in many a prayer, I've rebuked Jesus. You can't do this, Lord. You can't let this happen. Not sure which bit of deny yourself and take up your cross I failed to understand, but clearly I did. And so that, by a long way of introduction, is our background to where we renew our journey in James. There is, of course, more words in between. He speaks of the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation. We have this distinction between the, the rich and the poor, the lowly and the poor. I said at the time, we've got to be careful when we look at the words rich and poor in the book of James to only see monetary wealth. At the same point, we've got to be careful not to ignore the concept of monetary wealth. But the picture, as always, is predominantly one of lowliness and humiliation. Humility. And we are going to be humbled if we are going to walk with God. And it talked at the end of those last few verses about how everything is going to pass away and so will the rich man in the midst of his pursuit. Everything that you want, everything that you desire in this world is going to be gone and is going to be lost. What do you want with your life, people. What do you want with it? Do you want to glorify God? Are you happy if nobody else other than God is aware of what you've accomplished and done for him? Maybe your calling is to be a prayer warrior. Maybe you devote more time to prayer than anybody else in your circle. And you'll go to your grave and nobody will ever know. Less of me, more of him. Or do you just want to try and get things that you can't take with you? So, it nicely comes to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the most magnificent and glorious verse. This, this section here, verses 12 to 15, wraps up our first big section of, um, of James. Began in chapter 1 and verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. And then the next section will begin in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. And so this last few verses wraps it up and he kind of gives us an inclusio of sort, a sandwich of sort. 
He talks about remaining steadfast under trial, which is where we started in verse 2. There's the repetition of the word trial. There's also the repetition of being steadfast. Your testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let it have its full effect. Same word here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so it gives a, a sense of unity to the entire passage. But let's unpack it slowly because there's, there's so much here. So much here. Okay. This is what we commonly know as a beatitude. Blessed is or blessed are. You'll be familiar with this. Where are we familiar with this from? Well, first thing you're going to think of, I know, is Sermon on the Mount, is it not? I wonder if many of you remember back to before we started James, we took some time out in the Psalms, and how does the whole book of Psalms begin? Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And who was that man, by the way? When we read through Psalm 1 and went into Psalm 2, and we saw the blessed inclusio, the blessed sandwich, that the one who is blessed is the one who writes down his law. It's Deuteronomy command that those who have become kings must write out the law. And it was one who was being called to be king, and it was the one who in Psalm chapter 2 is going to give that blessedness to others who follow him. In other words, in the context of Psalms, the righteous man, the one who is blessed, is the Messiah. Now that's important. That's really important. And it's so often forgotten. Because when we say, when we have the expression, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, right? In scripture, that is found in Psalm 1 verse 1. It's then repeated in Psalm 31 verse 2, Psalm 33 verse 9. Psalm 39, verse 5. Psalm 83, verse 6. Psalm 111, verse 1. Sound in the Proverbs. Proverbs 8, 34. Proverbs 28, 14. In other words, what is established at the beginning of the book of Psalms is something that's carried through. And what's established right at the beginning is that the beatitude, blessed is the man, that there is, right from the very beginning, one particular man who is blessed. One particular man who is righteous. One particular man who God is pleased with and who has God's favor. Man, I love intertextuality, don't you? you, you just ha- I have what I've just said ringing in my ears and my mind is at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's all there connected. So when Jesus then comes in the Beatitudes... And he says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are these, blessed are that. We could, we could tell, I should probably keep an eye on the clock today because I went quite long last week. But, you know, Matthew chapter 5, um, you'll find it in, I had it written down somewhere, verses um, uh, 3 through 14, is it something like that? Certainly early of Matthew 5, um, you have the, um, the whole list of beatitudes also in Luke's gospel. What's Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? What's he doing in the Beatitudes? When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says, blessed are the meek, when he, when, he, when he talks about those who are blessed, what is he doing? In the Sermon on the Mount, and this, this could be a big rabbit trail, so I'm going to have to be very self-disciplined, 
But in the Sermon on the Mount, generally speaking, what Jesus is doing is teaching to the masses prior, the Jews, the masses are the Jews, prior to their rejection of him as Messiah, and he's teaching them Mosaic law. You have heard it said, he says repeatedly in those chapters, i.e. by the rabbis, by the religious leaders of the day, but I say to you, in other words, Moses has been interpreted this way for you, but I need you to understand that that was wrong. This is what Moses said, and this is what he meant. Jesus is, is essentially expositing the law for them. Why is that important? Because in Psalm 1, the man who is righteous, the man who is blessed, is a particular man who is a king who has a responsibility to keep the law above all of the rest of Israel. The kings had to write the entirety of the law down so that the law became their law. And that begins the book of Psalms. That Jesus is the blessed man, the righteous man, who has the law, who writes And of course, he uniquely writes the law in that it is the word of God and he is God. So when Jesus comes in the Beatitudes and said, blessed are they who this and that, you've got to see the intertextuality from Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1, I am going to have to turn there briefly, but Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. And then Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I don't want to repeat my sermons on Psalm 1 and 2. Two of the best of the last year, though, by the way. You should go back and listen to them if you missed them. <coughs> Maybe the rest of the standard wasn't good enough, but they were two of the better ones. Um, but because the Messiah is the blessed one, those who follow him and those who take refuge in him are blessed. The Messiah in the Old Testament scripture is a man of sorrows. He's the suffering servant. Yes, he will be the king who will have everything put under his feet as well. Yes, he is the one who will crush the serpent's head or the, the seed of a serpent's head. But his heel will be bruised. He will suffer. And so there is in the Beatitudes, there are these promises. And again, I should probably read, read them rather than just talk about them. But Matthew 5, uh, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In that expression, blessed are, blessed are, there is the connection to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. That there is one who is blessed above all. There is one who delights in the law above all. And if we take refuge in him, we share in his blessings. That is the background to all of the blessings that are promised to those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and who are reviled and persecuted, and all sorts of evil is spoken falsely of them. All of these things that we perceive to be negative are associated with being blessed because we're taking refuge in the man of sorrows. All of that is our background to James. James is not speaking in a vacuum. And what he's showing us in verse 12 is that what he said in verse 2 is not quite as radical and shocking as you might have initially thought. But rather... We follow the blessed man who went through the greatest of trials. And he stood firm. He even pled with the Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And yet, not my will be done but yours. And he went to the cross, and he endured the cross for our sake. That's the blessed man. Scholars look at this verse, this expression, and they wonder, why does he say blessed is the man? There's a word in Greek that means man in the sense of mankind. Anthropos. It's where you get the word anthropology from, the study of mankind. And it means men and it means women, right? Just man as in mankind, the generic man. There's another Greek word that means man, that means a man as opposed to woman. It's the same word that they use to speak of a husband. Uh, when, when someone says, um, in, in Greek, if someone were to say, a woman would say, this is my, my husband, they would say, literally, this is my man. If a man was to say, this is my wife, he would say, this is my woman. There wasn't a separate word. There's these words for man and woman that are distinct, distinguishing man from woman. And that's the word that James uses here. So I'm very quick to point out to you, when he says, count it all joy, brothers, that it means brothers and sisters. Because the word used there is generic and is speaking of everybody. Right? But this one isn't. He says, blessed is the man. Ladies, does that mean that you're not blessed? No, 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 I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying here is he's he's pointing to the fact that there is a specific man. In other words, ladies, are you required to be steadfast in trials? And will you be blessed if you are? Absolutely. What is your model in doing that? Is it one particular man? Before you husbands think I'm talking about you, I'm not. You've probably been a good model of how not to do it on far too many occasions. Talking about Christ. That there is the blessed man of Scripture, seen throughout the Psalms, seen throughout the prophets, this blessed, righteous, promised man, and he is the one who remains steadfast under trial. And I think that the whole point of James's structure here, and and the reason that he uses the word blessed here in the way that he does, the reason he uses the very specific, only masculine word for man here, rather than the generic term, which he could happily have used if he wanted to, is that what he is saying is this. He is saying that there is one man who stood firm under trial. And look, just look at the blessing that came from it. 
Just look at the blessing. You know, I think it's ridiculous when some of these modern versions want to try and demythologize a Christian word like blessed. And they try and translate it happy. Happy is the one. James is using this word to point to Jesus going to the cross. We're, We're not in the midst of some Monty Python movie with Jesus singing a song in the midst of his trials. We're talking about a biblical passion account where he was given a crown of thorns, where he was mocked, where he was whipped and scourged, and when the Father, in some way, shape or form, separated, in some sense, we won't get into that Pandora's box today, himself from the Son, when in a very real way, the sins of humanity were placed upon him. That's what we're talking about here. Does that make you think of the word happy? It doesn't make me think of the word happy. From him sweating blood in Gethsemane, from him pleading with the Father to take the cup from him. None of it screams happy to me. But boy, does it scream blessed. Because he rose from the grave and the one who humbled himself by becoming a man, Philippians 2, even to the extent of death upon a cross, that that one is going to be super exalted above all and everything will be placed under his feet and every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is Yahweh, that he is God, to the glory of God the Father. Now that sounds like blessed to me. How did the Father manifest his wisdom to the unseen realm, to the demonic realm, to the angelic realm? How did he manifest himself in his wisdom? And show himself to be mighty and superior. (coughs) He created the church through the death of his son. Who becomes head of that church. How does God save sinners who hate him? By the blood of his son shed for them. How does God glorify himself in human history? In no way greater than through the cross. Do you want wisdom? Do you want to walk the right way? Do you want your life to count for something? Be very, very sure that you know the answer before you ask. Do you want to follow Christ? Because there is your cross to carry. There are the trials that you have to walk through. There are the burdens you have to hold. But there's blessing. Guys, there is blessing. There is blessing like you could not imagine. You think that you're going to be wealthy and get your mansion and your Lamborghini and that that's going to make your life complete? You could end up with everything that you wanted and be as miserable as could be. 
And, and you can end up with all you want and be as happy as you can be, and that might even be worse. Because you'll never realize what you're lacking and what you need. And you might go through the history books with your name in print for some philanthropic duty or some great accomplishment without your name even being in the Lamb's Book of Life. You've got to decide what matters. You've got to decide what's important. You've got to decide what you're prepared to do, what you're prepared to walk through. Think about it. Pray about it. Don't doubt. Don't be too-minded, double-souled. Don't say, I want to follow you, Jesus, and then have all the other things in life that you want. And spend your Christian life studiously avoiding trials, avoiding difficult decisions, avoiding taking a stand, avoiding having to upset people, avoiding having to be perceived negatively, avoiding all those things in life that we hate, and boy, do we hate them. But we have to walk through them. We have to walk through them. We've got to be ridiculously stubborn about standing on the word of God and following Jesus Christ. Then we will ask for wisdom, and then God will give it to us. So the blessing comes to the man who remains steadfast under trial. That isn't to, again, in summary, that isn't to, um, <coughs> to put you outside of this blessing, ladies. It's for all of us to be pointed to the one particular man who stands as a model for standing and remaining steadfast under trial and being blessed at the end of it. And let me just emphasize at this point very, 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 very clearly that the blessing comes to the one who remains steadfast. Trials are always surprising. They're always surprising. Because what trials do is they show us things that were hidden. There are people that you might look at and say, that's a mature believer. And then trials come and they weren't. There are people that you might expect to lead you through trials who set an example that should be avoided. And there are those who maybe aren't the people that you consider to be the really godly people, you know? Maybe they don't dress smart enough on a Sunday. Maybe they use a few grey words that you wouldn't use in front of your granny. Maybe they don't watch the things that you watch or do the things that you do. Maybe the standards that you've set yourself, they don't match up to. But maybe the trials will show you that they had a bit more maturity and a bit more faith than you ever had. Trials are always surprising. There were people that I never thought would come to anything. And they go through difficult trials and they just constantly cry out to Jesus. And they mature, and they mature, and they mature until there's something completely different. And then there's people whose salvation I would never have doubted, who walked through trials, and it exposed their professed faith 
to not be a faith at all. And it's tragic. But in each case, trials are good. We should count them to be a joy because they expose what needs to be seen and they give this opportunity for us to remain steadfast, to prove our faith and to grow in our faith, like Abraham. And so, the verse concludes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for, this is the reason for the blessing, this is the explanation of the blessing. And I want you to understand this. Too many Christians, I think, are too fond of Stoicism as a philosophy. There's nothing, there's nothing blessed about enduring a trial for a trial's sake. Okay? In England, we have what's called the British stiff upper lip. Well, we're just going to press on through. Tally-ho. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, you can, you can go through trials and accomplish nothing, and there's nothing to be, to be gained. The steadfastness is seen in the faithfulness. The blessedness is not in the trial. The blessedness is in the steadfastness of remaining through. And that could not be clearer. I think that's clear earlier in these previous verses. It couldn't be clearer at the end of this verse when he says, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And I want us to understand this in two ways. Firstly, I want us to understand this in the context of (coughs) blessed is the man, masculine, Singular, individual, the model man, Jesus Christ. He could have called down angels from heaven. He could have avoided the cross. He wanted in his humanity to avoid the cross. He pled with the Father to take it from him. And yet, he was prepared even to go to death because there was the crown of life. Psalm 1, he's the blessed man. And he received the crown of eternal life. And he proved it for all of us by being raised from the dead and then ascending to heaven. And he is very much alive and he will come back and show us just how alive he is in due course. And so he, as the individual, is the one who has shown us the blessedness of trusting God, that there is a crown of life that was promised to those who love him, and there was no one who loved the Father more than the Son. Now, there is, of course, the other side of this. We go from Psalm 1, blessed man, Messiah, to Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge in him. If we have faith, if we trust, if we consider the trials to be joy, if we remain steadfast under them, then there is for us blessing as well. Because when we have stood the test, when we have remained firm in the midst of this trial, the trials of life, 
then we will receive the crown of life. Two types of crowns in the Bible. There are diadems, which we sing about sometimes in one of those old hymns, I don't recall which, but... Um, say? Or hail the power of Jesus' name. Thanks, head of worship. <laughs> Knowing the songs. The reference to diadems. These crowns. And I think sometimes we don't distinguish. There's another type of crown, if you're called Stephen. It's a Stephanos. That's where your name comes from. Um, and there is these two types of crowns. The, the diadem seems to be a crown that is given on the value of worth. If you are the king, you are worthy to have the royal diadem. But then there is another crown, the Stephanos crown. And that's the crown that's referenced here. And that is a crown that is given sometimes to kings. So it's not like it's just a distinction regarding royalty or anything. But the, the Stephanus crown tends to go to the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes. When they had the ancient Olympic Games, the Ithnian Games were the local ones of that era um, that they would have been familiar with at the time of writing. Then they were given a wreath, the sort of circular crown of leaves that was given to the victor, given to the one who won the race. Your life is a race. Not a race in the sense of getting to the line first before you go out and live in a way that you shouldn't, but a, a, a contest, a struggle, a fight, a challenge. And it is a battle of one. You are not trying to beat another person so that you might get a crown that they do not get. You are simply looking to stand firm in the midst of trials. To trust in Jesus before they come. To trust in Jesus when they begin. To trust in Jesus when they get so bad you don't know if you can go on. And to trust in Jesus when you come out the other side. And to trust in Jesus when they start all over again. And if you are found to be someone trusting in Jesus and declaring Jesus and glorifying Jesus in the midst of trials throughout your life, then you can be assured of this, that you will receive a crown, a victor's crown, an overcomer's crown, that you have fought the good fight, that you have run the race, and that there is a crown, and that crown is this, life. Life. That's your crown. Eternal, glorious, sinless, uninhibited, perfect life. The danger is, is that we love this life so much, we're so desperate to cling on to this life, that we never have a part in the life to come. This is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. And boy, this is James. This is just what this book is all about from beginning to end. There's two ways. There's a way of the Christian, the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness, the way of God, and then there's the other way. 
And this way is a faithful way. This way is the true way. This is a way that is seen in how you live your life, where your trust and your faith is exposed in the things that you do. This is why James goes on about works, and we'll get to that in chapter 2 later on, but, but this is the whole essence of what James is going to be talking about in this book. He only knows two ways. That isn't to say that there won't be times in our lives when there are trials and we fail. There won't be times in our lives when there are trials and we find that we didn't trust God as we should. But the key issue is this. Do we get back up and trust Christ again for the next trial? Do we remain steadfast? I don't want you, friends, to think that steadfastness means continual victory. It doesn't. It means that when you're knocked down, that you don't get out of the ring. It means that you just keep on going, not because of your own strength and not in your own might, but because you trust Christ even in this that you are prepared to walk even to the cross. Because even if death is taken away from you, sorry, even if you're taken to death and life is taken away from you, you are assured of the crown of life. Quite the clarion call, isn't it, for us as Christians? Winston Churchill's promise of blood, sweat and tears is the the cultural equivalent, I believe. That we are not promised our best lives now. Most definitively not. But rather, we must let go of our lives that we might find them. We must let go of our goals and our desires and our will that God may give us something so much better and so much more glorious. And so, we will next time wrap up this conclusion when James will, in this small section of four verses, repeat words regarding trials and temptations six times. He will bring this to its conclusion. I just wanted us today to focus on that verse because I want us to know this. It's a good reminder of where we've been so far in James. It's a good reminder of where we're going. And it's a reminder that we are following one person, the blessed man who went to the cross, who trusted his father. And we are going to trust him as we walk through trials. And that will enable us to consider it to be joy. It won't be joy. It won't be fun. It won't be pleasant. It really isn't, is it? But we're going to consider it to be a good thing because we know that God, if he can bring the greatest good to mankind through the greatest trial in that one blessed man, that we can find our own blessing as we remain steadfast in our trials. And as we do remain steadfast through our lives, we'll come to the end and we'll receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I want to pray today for those 
who are backsliding. For those who are just in the midst of trials, in the midst of the trials of society at this time, with all this going on with coronavirus and lockdown, the trials of their own personal lives that are opting out. Not simply of opting out of attending church, but opting out of walking with you, opting out of following you, opting out of trusting you. This season is exposing so much. Have mercy on us, God. If it was left to us, we would have departed from you long ago. But yet you are merciful again and again. Save those amongst us who aren't saved. And mature those of us who are. That we might lack nothing. That we might let go of all the things that the people in this world crave after. That we might lack nothing. And walk in maturity and accomplish great things for your name. Whether they're seen as great or not, that we would just be found to be faithful to the one who was faithful to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.